I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 24. 1 Samuel, chapter and number 24 is where we're going to look. First Samuel chapter 24, we're in a series of messages called Lessons from the Holy Land. And we're looking at places that we visited on my tour, notable places. We've talked about Capernaum and uh, Gideon's Spring, a number of other places in our study that we've already looked at. We, we even talked about Masada and James the Zealot and, and what that meant, who he was a part of, and the Sakari which was the group that took Masada, were known as the, the, uh, the dagger and were known to be assassins. And yet God took this man who was, who was um, quite a bit of a renegade in his day. In fact, in fact, had the government gotten a hold of him, he would have been given the death penalty because many zealots were crucified on the walls of Jerusalem. And yet God chose him along with Matthew the publican. And so you have two men at opposite extremes that should hate each other. And yet, though there's some arguments amongst the disciples, you never find a word spoken from Simon the Zealot against Matthew the publican or vice versa. And we learned some lessons from that, didn't we? That Jesus can take opposites and blend them in harmony for a greater cause than any cause they'd ever lived for. And in fact, he died having been sawn asunder for his faith. What a man. His, his zealot passion was turned from an earthly cause to a heavenly one. Now, I want, to look, I want you to look with me in, in um, sec, or 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel and chapter 24. And it came to pass when David, or excuse me, when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And then Saul took three thousand chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats, by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold the day which, of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thy hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. And then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And so David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. And David also rose afterward and went out of the cave and cried unto Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David 
stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said unto Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee uh, today into my hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee, but mine eye spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and kill thee not, know thou, and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, the Lord avenge me of thee, but my hand shall not be upon thee. As with the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceed from the wicked, but my hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? The Lord therefore be the judge, and judge between me and thee, and see, and plead my cause, and deliver me out of thy hand. And it came to pass, when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said unto David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, forasmuch as when the Lord had delivered me into thy hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go? Well away, wherefore the Lord reward thee good, for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thy hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord, that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men gathered up, gathered, uh, got them up into the hole. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now that you would open your word to us. Give us, dear God, that which only you can. Speak to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that um, you would take this word and carry it deep within each one of us. Lord, I don't know all the struggles that each person here faces, but I know we all face them. And I know that you know everything about us. And so I pray now that uh, in this time together, as we study lessons from En Gedi, that you would uh, give us those lessons and help us to apply them to our life. And we'll ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. When Saul was anointed to be king over Israel, he was a man large in stature and small in ego. The Bible says that he stood head and shoulders above everybody around him. And yet, he was a man that did not assume upon himself the mantle of leadership. He thought himself unqualified to lead such a people. And yet God, God called him. It was God's plan for Saul's life and the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him the Bible says that God gave him another heart the Bible said that God sent to him a band of men whose hearts God had touched 
And so God gave him everything that he needed on the inside and on the outside. He surrounded him with a group of people to help him and encourage him. Everything that Saul possibly needed to be a good and godly leader of Israel, God had given to him. And the future seemed extremely bright for a man who possessed such humility. But it was Lincoln who made this statement, nearly all men can stand adversity. If you want to test the character of a man, give him power. And the reality of the matter is it wasn't long until the corrupting influence of power began to erode away at Saul's humility. The position that he had assumed, he thought somehow he became to think that he was deserving. He became entitled, and he, and he thought that it was only right that he be the leader. He became obsessed with his own sense of self-importance, and, and, and thusly a drastic change took place in Saul. Uh, since the first day that he had assumed the crown, he became rash. He became extremely vindictive. He became paranoid. Now, young David, who was only and ever supportive and loyal to the king, is going to be the one that bears the brunt of Saul's abuse, of his emotional instability. And when David killed Goliath, suddenly, you remember he had that conversation with Saul before the battle. And Saul was all for him and even offered him his own armor to go into battle against Goliath. But when David, when David came out victorious with just a sling and just five smooth stones, he was suddenly thrust into the national consciousness. He no longer was a shepherd boy, the son of Jesse. Now, all of a sudden, he becomes a national hero. And it was almost under pressure, we feel like, that Saul appointed David to be the general over <clears throat> the army of Israel. He was thrust into the national spotlight, but I want to tell you, his victory would carry a price. He lost a lot. He killed Goliath, but if you'll go from that point on, David lost an awful lot in his life from that victory. The attention that he receives just totally alters the dynamics of his relationship with the king whom he served so faithfully. And it ultimately ends up where Saul tries to take the life of David on several occasions. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Would you, would you, would you go there? 1 Samuel chapter 18. you'll find sort of the beginning of this. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. They came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets and joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands. Very next verse, verse 8. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. 
And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. I want to tell you, once Saul opened his mind to jealousy and, and uh, paranoia, those emotional poisons, he became obsessed with his hatred of David and, and paranoid of those around him, including his own son, Jonathan. I remember years ago, years ago there was a church that I was familiar with, both the church and the pastor and the staff that was there. And during one celebration of a holiday, somebody came up and offered to the staff member a gift and did not give a gift to the pastor. So right there on that night in church, an argument broke out because of the pastor's jealousy of the gift that was given and literally the church split right down the middle. There are two churches in that city today because of jealousy and rage. And so I want to warn you, do not give to Chad or Nathan anything that you do not first give me. Can you imagine what it was like in David's heart when Saul took the very army that David had once led and organized them to come after the man who had so faithfully led them. Can you imagine the pain there? What a bitter pill to be hunted by the very men that he once led. I want to remind you of this, that David's going to wind up, we'll talk about that in just a moment, with 400 men. Saul comes after him with 3,000. You know, you talk about overkill. And so David flees for his life and he becomes a fugitive at the edge of the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea. And, and, and they're a band of men who have been immortalized in the Bible as David's mighty men. I love that section. I love Eliezer, the son of Dodo. The guy who gripped the sword and fought for a pea patch so ferociously while the men of Israel were gone away that the Bible says his hand clave unto the sword. God give us men who will cleave to the sword so strong that they cannot part from it. I, I love those men, Benaniah and, and others that, that fought so ferociously for truth and I love David's mighty men. A lot of those men didn't have good backgrounds and good beginnings and yet God took them and used them in a great way in David's life. And so they gather to David, these men do. They become his comrades in exile. And yet as the Bible we just read about in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David suddenly finds himself in a cave in En Gedi, which means the spring of the kid goat, the spring of the young goat. And now suddenly Saul is there and David can exact revenge. David can take his life. David can even the score. David can end the drama. David can put a stop to everything that has hounded him. And some people say it lasted for about 10 years he was a fugitive. And now it's in David's hand to put a stop to all of it. 
But he let Saul go. He let him walk. <laughs> would you? After 10 years, would you? After everything he had lost, would you? After having, having to get his, his family and hide them from Saul for fear that, that, that reprisal would fall upon them, would you not feel so defensive that when you had the opportunity, would you? Have you? Let your enemy go. What are the lessons we can learn from En Gedi? Now here's what I want to do. Right now I'm going to take a minute and a half and I want to show you just a quick little view of En Gedi because I want you to picture in your mind, I want you to be able to see where it was that David went to because what is En Gedi? It's in the, listen, it's, it's in the edge of the Judean wilderness. On one side is the Judean wilderness. On the other side is the Dead Sea. And it's about as dead a place as you'll ever see in all the world. Dried nothingness. Craggy rocks and gaping caves. And yet God brought him to a place that was a place of refreshment for him. So let's get the lights and just watch this for a second. Those animals, those goats there, are called ibex, and I so appreciate their cooperation in making this film, and posing just this at the perfect spot. Now, what do you notice there? You notice in the middle of the dry, that's where goats live, okay? I mean, it's so remote, there are goats climbing amongst the rocks, and yet there are seven waterfalls in that place. And it's, it's not like a wadi, like the wadi kept that only flows certain times of the year. It's constantly flowing. And it is in the middle of a dead area of the world, right next to the lowest spot in, in the earth. It is, uh, it, is, um, it is an oasis. And so that's where God took David. And there are caves all up in those rocks. And there's, there's, there's places to store food. And the coolness of the cave 
and, and there's animals there, wildlife there, vegetation there, and more importantly for life, there's water there. And so it is in, in Gedi, the spring of the young goat that God sent David. So what's the first lesson we learn? Lesson number one is this, changing locations won't always solve your problems. Changing locations won't always solve your problems. Now there's no doubt in my mind that as David ran from Saul in the Judean wilderness and struggled in the heat and the absolute lifelessness of that area. And God led him to that oasis spot called En Gedi. <clears throat> David found a place that was refreshing to him. He found a place that was indeed an oasis of peace and escape from his trouble. And yet the reality of the matter is simply this. Saul's always hounding the trail. And so he pursues David there. And even though it seemed for a while that David had discovered peace, even though for a while it seemed that David had left his troubles behind, even though it seemed for a little bit that, that the drama had ended and David now and his men were safe, uh, held up in this uh, oasis place uh, in the middle of that desert, trouble showed up again and suddenly Saul was there. I want to just say this to you. There are times in our life where we come to the realization we can't escape our troubles. Sometimes in our life, we think that maybe if we could just change circumstances, if we can just rearrange things to become a little more like we want them, that somehow our, our troubles will end and, and it will be the cure-all. And most of the time, can I help you with this? The changes that you and I invent in our life, and we've probably all done this at some time or another, they don't, they, they don't really, it's not really the cure-all, okay? doesn't mean that, that you should stay where you are. It means that you've got to go where God wants you. And, and, and that's, the, that's the key to it. Sometimes what we do in our effort to run, we actually only exchange one set of troubles for another. Sometimes we just swap the color, swap the circumstances, swap the area, swap the job, swap whatever, and yet we've got to realize that the answer is not in location as much as it is in the Lord. David, while he was there in En Gedi, wrote several psalms. One of those, after he left En Gedi, is Psalm 57. And he says in verse number 1, Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Boy, you want to talk about a mouthful in a verse. David said, I ran to En Gedi, I hid in the cave, I was, I, was, I was living amongst the goats. Okay? My, my world was surrounded by 400 faithful men and a mountain, a mountain of goats. They were my companions. I was there. I thought it was all good. And then all of a sudden, trouble comes knocking at my door again. God, 
I learned this lesson. My lesson is in Getty. The rocks, the caves, the oasis, that's not my refuge. You're my refuge. I can't trust, I can't trust in my hiding place. You are my hiding place. Under the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I want to tell you, listen to me, dear friend. I don't care what it is you're facing. There's no place. There's no place. Get the picture. There's no place like being under the wing. Under the wing. He draws that beautiful picture. We used to raise chickens back in Georgia some to give the kids something to do and, and, and some little training there. And, and those, those Rhode Island Reds would have those little biddies running around, and you could walk over, and as soon as they heard the, heard the stomp of your foot, that mama would lift her wing, and those little chicks would run up under there and, and just, just hide up under her. And there she is all fluffed out, and I want to tell you, she was mad as a wet hen, and she wouldn't let you get near her chicks. That's the picture God's giving us. Under my wings is where the safety is at. And so just let me just help you with this. I remember Curtis Hudson used to say that the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. Most of the time it's just astroturf. Okay? You get over there and you find out it's not real to begin with. And so changing locations, the idea that you figured out, I can do this and my troubles will be gone, it never seems to work out that way. The answer is not location, the answer is the Lord. He'll direct your life. Number two, not all advice is good advice. Look down at verse 4 again. Would you do that? Here's Saul there, and, and the men of David said unto him, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee. Now listen to what the Lord said. This is going to shock you. Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Can I help you with this? God never said that. God never said to David, all right, I'm going to give Saul to you. You do whatever, whatever you want to do to him, just do to him. Okay? God never said that. Can I help you with this? I said this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. But be careful about people who tell you they know what God is saying to you. When somebody comes to you and says, the Lord told me to tell you, ask this question, chapter and verse. Okay? Chapter and verse. Let me help you with something. Let me help you with something. God doesn't speak to us like he did in old times. Okay? like he did to the prophets in old times. Why? Because when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. And if you believe in a completed Bible, then you don't believe in extra-biblical revelations. So God doesn't come to me and say, Hey, Dean, yes, Lord, I want you to do this. Yes, Lord. No, no, no. I'm not saying that God doesn't move my heart and God doesn't lead me, but everything comes is matched with the Scripture. This is the filter through which every so when 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 the men said to David and by the way they were absolutely sincere they were genuine as could be and the only thing they had in mind was helping their buddy 400 men gathered around him and they were tired of the drama also and so now there's Saul and David's got an opportunity to to to, to kill him and 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 the men said hey let me tell you let me give you some interpretation David this is the day that God has granted you. And God said, you can do anything you want to to Saul. That was horrible advice. Here's the problem. They didn't know what was best for David. 
Now look at me. Sometimes your best friends are going to have your best interest in mind, and the advice that they're going to give you is not good advice. In fact, it's bad advice, because all advice that isn't Bible advice isn't good. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. Maybe they thought David wanted to hear that. Maybe they just thought David needed a little nudge. Get him now, David, and this thing's over. Son, we'll pack our grip and get out of here. We're tired of seeing the goats. You know, we're tired of living up here in the rocks. We enjoy the waterfalls and enjoy the pools and all that kind of stuff. But we'd like to get back to some, some, some society. Let us, let's get this, let's put an end to this. Okay. Maybe they thought that's what he wanted to hear. Let me just tell you this. You ought to let the Bible filter every decision you make. Listen carefully. Your heart will deceive you into thinking that you're seeking advice when what you're really seeking is agreement. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, just like my heart, just like our heart. And sometimes your heart will tell you, you need to get some advice. And what you're really doing is you're, you're, you're looking for somebody to pat you on the back and agree with you so that you can make a decision that's not filtered through the Bible. It's wrong. It, it's, it's, but, 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 but a lot of times what we're really looking for is, is affirmation and agreement rather than advice and counsel. Now I'm going to help you with something because I'm a pastor. Okay, I've been doing this since I was 17. I'm just going, and I tremble at some of the advice I've given in the past. The older I've got, the less I think I know. I mean, I'm absolutely honest with you. The older I've got, the less I think I know God's will for people. But there's some things that I've observed, and that is simply this. When you come looking for advice, and you carry with you an argument of spirit, and you want to argue about the advice, I know you're not looking for true counsel and true advice. You're looking for agreement and affirmation. And I'm not giving you that. And any true counselor will not give you that. If you want truth, I'll give you truth. Now listen to me. As I see it, I'm not God. So my advice isn't always spot on. Sometimes I might be like one of David's guys and say, kill him. Kill him. And you may look in your Bible and say, well, Pastor, thank you, but where is that? First Herring 4, 8, C, the last part of the verse. No, I, so, so I, my, look, I'm not, I'm not the sage. I'm your pastor, I promise you every answer I ever give you, sometimes people will come to me and I'll say, I, I don't know, let me pray about this. Let me, let me, give me some time, let me pray. I don't know the answer, let me pray and see if God gives me some light on this. Because I, I, I don't just, I'm not a dispenser. Pastor, here's my problem, F2, give me the answer. And you pull the lever and the answer comes out and we're all living happily ever after. I don't do that. So here's what you get to do. When I give you advice, you can take it or leave it. Two choices. Take it. Second choice, leave it. Okay? You can take it or leave it. But at least, at least, at least hear it. At least, at, at least listen. At least consider. Don't become defensive. Don't argue. Hear me out. 
and then make your decision. Okay? Leave and get in your car and say, <laughs> he's nuts. He's crazy. That's okay. But at least hear it out. Let me, let me give you a verse. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Thank your God in heaven for a friend who loves you enough that will hurt you with truth. Thank your God in heaven that somebody will sit down with you, listen to you, and then will hurt you and say you're absolutely, totally wrong. You're looking at this wrong. You may not agree with them, but a friend... You know what an enemy will do? He'll kiss you every time you come around. Because he wants something from you. But a friend's willing to hurt you. Proverbs 27, verse 17, Iron sharpeneth iron, and so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friends. You know what the sharpening comes from? Collision. Bam. It's, it's, it's friction. You know what happens? It sparks. My neighbor... You just have a sharpening stone, and you'd, you'd, you have the treadle there, and you put a little water on it, you put that, you put that, that iron on it, and, and the sparks would fly everywhere, and, and, and yet it, it wound up sharpening. And so you take a file, and you, you, you take that axe, and you're, you're sharpening it, and you're, 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 it's abrasive, and it's, it, it, when you put it in human form, uh, so, a, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. God help us. Now, Susie, raise your hand. Many of you have not met her. This is my wife, okay? Susie. If I really need her attention, I call her Sam because that was her nickname in college. So if you hear me say Sam, I'm really, she's not listening to me, okay? Which is often. No, I'm kidding. But anyhow, you, you, you know she's my best friend in all the world. And did you know this? The last thing I need from her is for her to feel like my goal in life is to build his ego. Now, she does. She does. She'll tell me that some of my paintings are really good. And I'm looking at them and saying, no, that ain't good. File 13. And, 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 and so she does do that. But there are times in my life I need her to challenge me. I need her to tell me the truth. I, I need her to be not just my help, but my help meet. Not just the person that walks along beside me through life. That's help. Study the Word. Help meet. The word meet means that she doesn't walk beside me. She gets in front of me. There have been times in my life where she has stepped in front of me and said, Dean, let's think. Let's think about this. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I've moved across the nation. I stood in front of a church and resigned and stopped a paycheck that we got every week because God called me from Georgia to Idaho and she told me she told me wherever you go I'll go whatever you decide I'll support and so she walks beside me everywhere I go but there have been times in my life I didn't need that from her I needed her to get in front of me and say just think about this okay just think about this and she's challenged me at times. And so sometimes we need that from, from not just our mates, 
sometimes from our family, sometimes from our friends, sometimes my children, we've sat around and talked and my children have said, Dad, could you explain this to us? And I'm sitting there thinking, not really. Really can't explain that to you. Well, why do we do it? Because we've always done it. Well, why we've always done it? Shut up and ask your mother. Anyhow, so, yeah. So sometimes, sometimes we need the people that love us the most to, to, to question us, okay? If, look, if it's, not in an arrogant, if it's not in an arrogant manner or a challenge to the degree of, of their trying to undermine your authority, I, I'm not talking about kids that are mouthy. I'm talking about the ability to sit down and explain things that maybe you don't really have an answer to. You ought to face up to that. Give me, let me give you a verse of Scripture, Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. The way of who? A fool. If you're always right, F, zero, zero, or actually O, O, L. Okay? If you're always right, the Bible says you're a fool. If you're never wrong, the Bible says you're a fool. If, if, if you can never be corrected, the Bible says you're a fool. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he that hearkeneth unto counsel... He's open to his own flaws, her own flaws, to correction, to adjustment, is wise. Lesson number three, every journey begins with the first step. Now when you think about what happened here, what David did, rather than doing what his, his men, those loyal, faithful David's band of mighty men told him God said he could do, David, instead of killing Saul, took a part of Saul's garment and cut it with his sword. I'm going to show him that I could have. And immediately upon doing that, David's heart smote him. Verse 5 of chapter 24, and it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. Now look at me, listen to me. David had not done what his men had advised him to do, but what David had done was that he had taken a small step in the wrong direction. Just a, just a small step. It, was, it wasn't big. He didn't cut off a lock of the hair. He, he didn't say, all right, I'll tell you what I will do. I'm going to have a toe I'm wearing around my neck. It's going to be Saul's toe. Every time Saul sees me, I'm going to say, hey, dude, don't forget your toe. You know, he could have done that. But he just cut off a, 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 a part of Saul's robe there, and, 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 and now all of a sudden, why? He, he's, 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 smoting, he, he's been smitten by his heart. Why? Because, because he took that small step in the wrong direction and he knew it deep in his heart listen to proverbs chapter 14 in fact go there turn right now proverbs chapter 14 i want you to see two verses of scripture proverbs chapter 14 proverbs 14 look at verse 12 there is a way which what's the next two words well, wait a minute hey wait oh this I mean, this seems right to me. I mean, this, I don't, Pastor, this just seems to make sense. I figured this out. It fits the logistics. 
So this seems right. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man. But wait a minute. What happens at the end of the line? It seems right today. But the end thereof are the ways of, what's that last word? Death. Go with me to chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. Let's see if God really means what he says. He does, no matter how many times he says it. But look in verse 25 of chapter 16. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. God is saying this. It may look good. It may smell good. It may check out good. It may fit all of your logistics. It may be absolutely the only answer that you can see at this moment. It seems right. But boy, we make the biggest mess out of our life. We make the biggest blunders. When we, when we go by what seems right to us rather than by what God in His Word guides us, we, we, we're in trouble. Let me give you another verse of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. Look at this. Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every, you ought to circle that. Every way. We just got through talking about when, when you're never wrong. When you're always right, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. You see, the Lord pondereth the hearts. Normally, normally it's a series of small steps that lead us far from where we ought to be. The journey, listen, the journey from the Father's house to the far country began with the first step. And that first step ended in the hog pen. But it was just a series of incremental steps rather than one big, giant, radical leap. That, it's true about marriage and relationships. It's true about faithfulness to church. It's true about our personal walk with the Lord. It, 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 listen to me, don't overlook the small steps away from what is right. Stealing $10 from your work emanates from the same sinful heart as stealing a thousand does. Well, all I stole was ten bucks. I mean, good night, I'll put the ten dollars back. No, no, that's not the issue. The issue is where did that come from? Where did that come from? Where do we get the liberty to steal a tool? Or, or, or to swipe anything that's not ours? What kind of a heart issues that type of thought so it's 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 not a you know i've read the story of clyde barra clyde didn't clyde clyde wasn't big time he wasn't dillinger he wasn't babyface nelson or pretty boy floyd clyde clyde would pull into service stations and 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 raid just like cigarette machines convenience stores they never had a big haul he began just a nickel and dime thief, basically, in the West Bogs of Dallas. But he wound up on the front page of every newspaper, and ultimately down a road in Louisiana, he wound up with a body riddled with bullet holes. Why? Because he took small steps that led him to where he, the end thereof are the ways of death. And so the reality of the matter is we have to pay attention to the small steps because it's the small steps that lead us. How many times have I been said, Pastor, how did I get here? One step at a time. 
One small step at a time. That's why the Bible pictures sin as leprosy. Let me say, let me say uh, uh, next, and this is important, um, revenge doesn't belong to us. Revenge does not belong to us. Now let me just say this, I'm going to tie a knot, but listen carefully. If there was ever a man that had a right to use the sword, it was David. I mean, everything, every ounce of justice in those men that were with him, and as we read the Bible, Saul's a nutcase, okay? I mean, if, if you read the story of this man, he would absolutely, he would absolutely be diagnosed today as, as being severely bipolar. Look, look, look at the, read the story in these chapters. Um, he rages, then he weeps. Then he wants to kill David. Then he asks for forgiveness. Then he threatens his own son's life. Then he calms down and vows to do better. You know what he was? He was a civil war. All wrapped up inside him. Saul was at war with Saul. And it just bled over to everybody that was around him. Every bit of it. Saul cast his javelin to the wall 1 Samuel 18, 11, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And so God's not calling us to stay and get killed. Sometimes it's smart to avoid, on our part, situations that, that can exacerbate the problems. Okay? We, have to, we, we, we have to be careful. We have to avoid sometimes bad situations and bad intentions. But the thing we cannot do is we cannot, we cannot seek revenge. Let me tell you something about revenge. You can't tame it. Revenge, revenge once it's released, goes rogue. Once it's escaped, it cannot be captured easily. And once it gets into our bloodstream, it intoxicates us. And it makes us feel like we're in control. And, and like Samson, like Samson who said, I will avenge the Philistines just this once, and then I stay. No, 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 no. Can't do that, buddy. You can't do that. Because once you get revenge, you have assumed an authority and a power that is not yours to begin with, and you don't know how to control it because it controls you. And though Samson said, this will be it, it wasn't it. It happened over and over and over again. You can't just quit once once you get bitten by the habit of striking back. But a pint of blood and a pound of flesh sometimes is the most satisfying, feel-good thing that we can ever get. What we don't realize is that in the long run it leaves us empty and bitter. And here's the deal. It makes a thief out of us. Pastor, why do you say that? Because Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. God said, no, 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 that's mine. I own vengeance and I own recompense. Th those are mine. Don't, don't, come, don't come taking what doesn't belong to you. Psalm 94, verse 1, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. David's in a mess, and 
David says, something's got to be done here. But God, I need, I need you because you've got the vengeance. I don't. Vengeance doesn't belong to me. Oh God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Romans 12, 19, dearly beloved, avenge, listen, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Don't be a thief. Don't try to get even. Here's one of the reasons why is because God knows what we don't know that we think we do know. In other words, I don't know the whole story. I know the whole story. I passed Victor one day. I said, hey to Victor. You know what he did? He just, hmm. He walked on by. And I'm like, dude, what's wrong with Victor? I go home and say to Susie, I saw Victor and spoke to him, and he just grunted at me. And she says, well, I don't know. He didn't say anything to me last Sunday either. And man, all of a sudden, we start thinking, well, Victor must not like us. And we, 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 you know, I, I was preaching last Sunday, and, it, and he had this look on his face, and we start imagining all this stuff going on. And pretty soon, Victor's the worst guy in the world, and he hates us. You know what really happened? What really happened was Sherry lost his tools by helping him straighten up. Sherry, leave his tools alone, please. I don't know the story. I don't know what happened to him on the job. I don't know that he's just been laid off and he's trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet. I don't know the fact that he got a phone call from, 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 from a family member and they've been suddenly uh, diagnosed with stage four cancer. But here I am in my penny ante little feeling sorry for myself attitude. I'm, I'm coming up with this case against Victor because, because somehow I think I've got all the, all the good. I don't have all the goods and neither do you. Let me help you with this. You don't know everything about me. And I've been here for 17 years. I don't know everything about you. Nor do I want to. But let me tell you this. God knows everything about you and me and all of us together. And only God can make the right assessment of what I need to correct me and what you need to correct you. He's the only one capable of passing that kind of judgment. And so God said, nah, don't touch it, Dean. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. Now here's the question, and I close for the third time. Three questions. Ready? Question number one, do you believe God knows what happens in your life? Do you believe God knows what's going on in your life? That's a question. Question number two, do you believe that God is just? Okay. If, if, if you believe those two, yeah, He knows everything. He knows what's going on. Yes, I believe God is fair. God is just. Number three, can you trust God to handle the inequities? See, David had him. David, David had him. 
And as men said, strike fast and strike fatal. But David said, wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't done this. And he showed Saul. And if you follow the story out, God does bring equity about and David does find the throne. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Do you believe God can take care of your inequities? If you do, he will. Let's bow our heads, could we? It's bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, can I tell you, we'll take a Bible and show you how you can be saved. Maybe you want to find yourself a, a place to kneel right there, right there at your chair. Some are doing that. Just, just kneel right where you're at. Ask God to help you. It's a frustrating place in life when you feel like life is treating you unfair and that nobody cares and that God's not doing his job. He is. He is. It's 10 years with David. 10 years. 10 years. Before God brought an end. But all the things that David learned about God during those times. Let God trust God. God will do what you need Him to do. Father, we thank You, dear God, that you don't run on our timer. I am so grateful for that. There have been times in my life when I have wanted you to hurry up and tried to talk you into hurrying up. And then in the long run, I saw that had you hurried up, things would never have worked out the way they did. So I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you, God, for your patience with me. And I pray that you will help us all, dear God, to learn the lessons from En Gedi that are so clearly taught. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.